hands. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Take your seats. Amen. Praise the Lord. If you will bring up the word cloud, I always like to remind anybody that's listening or anybody that's new here today, uh, we are a Bible-believing church that's always front and central. When you step into this building, we'd like to see a Bible that's symbolically opened, but we pray that it will be reflective of your practice. We want the word of God to influence you and direct your steps. Uh, the scripture says, one of the earliest verses I learned in Bible school as a little kid, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and can you finish it and a light unto my path uh, we used to pledge it I will hide God's word in my heart that I might not sin against God there is a big challenge for us to know the word of God and yet many of us can barely find the book of Habakkuk many of us have trouble finding and being able to finish a verse some of them that are even very popular I go around and I even ask you what is your favorite verse in the Bible and some folks hmm not sure it's almost like a good meal that you had yesterday, but you can't remember what it is today. I always want you to treasure some, some text that you might feast on it, that, that if you're in a quiet moment or you're stuck in a traffic jam or, or, or whatever else, is, you're, you're sitting uh, for hours and hours in the waiting room at the, at the hospital. You can always have the Word of God be fresh, and it can encourage you. For it can reach to the innermost part of your being. And the word of God also ought to inform you when you have to make decisions, whether they have to do with medical decisions or whether political decisions uh, or even uh, where you're going to be living, all those kind of things, what your employment going to be. Uh, God's word is that lamp unto our feet and light unto our path. If you look at the word cloud, it's because in the word of God we find the gospel, the good news, the hope to this world. And uh, when you look around and you see things falling apart all around us, even now, instead of just words of Jesus saying wars and rumors of wars, there's actually war going on right now. That we know that the good news will always be good news. That there is a, a remedy to the real core problem. And we'll look, be looking at today because the gospel is found in the word of God. And because of the gospel, it changes everything else. When you look at that cloud, you can see that we're reformed, that God is big in salvation. You can see we're covenantal. We know that this salvation is never going to change because God entered into covenant with us and, and he sealed it. Uh, that's why we call ourselves New Covenant. Uh, we have a, a, an emphasis on meeting with God for worship, and that's why we're worship cherishing. And hopefully you'll see the other things being multi-generational, friendly, uh, caring, blended. All those things are because God is at work in us. And that's why even as we sang today uh, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer or the, the Apostles' Creed song, we believe that God forgives sins and he is the one who is preparing us for something more. Now, in light of all of that, I do want to draw your attention to the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word as it was given in the originals, uh, in the Greek and the Hebrew. Uh, if you'll open up your Bibles, we're going to be looking at three texts. They're uh, short ones. Uh, this is a topical message, and we'll be looking at quite a few verses in the scriptures. Uh, but this first one comes from the book of Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.28. This is one that I'm sure you've heard before. Uh, it is, this is God's word from Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that verse, when you, when you just read it on your own, it, it makes great sense theologically. But in a cultural mess, this verse might even be misunderstood. 
The idea that it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter if you're slave or free, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, and it doesn't, uh, but what does matter is that you are in Christ. See, there is an explanation that we need to make sure we get so that we're not deceived, even on that text. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you're going to find that there is a text here that, that, that talks about the resurrection. And there is a defining point. You're either going in one direction or another, and uh, there's going to be a change. And if you look here, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. You can't have both at the same time. And it's quite interesting when you think through that for a moment. There is a great big difference between what is perishable and what is imperishable. You can't have them both. At least not at the same time. Now, if you look at Luke 17, this is one that uh, one of Jesus' words. Uh, and it says, there will be two women grinding together or working at the, at the mill, grinding the grain. One will be taken and the other left. When was the last time you heard this sermon text? Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that women are supposed to be working at the mill? No, the emphasis that Jesus is bringing here is in the context of the second coming, but he ends up saying there is two distinct destinations. There are going to be situations that are going to be stark. And he says, here's two women. They look just the same, but one is going to be going to this and the other to this. See, it's not the same outcome. We're going to explain some of these things as we d dive into the text today, but keep your Bibles open. We're going to be moving around in a quite a few texts. But let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, the, uh, the message today is about the leverage of advantage. Many times we have been uh, pulled in different directions. We've been listening to different voices. We find our favorite authors, and we're, we're inclined to think like they think. Lord, I pray that we might find that you are our favorite writer and that we will think what you think. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In Galatians chapter 5, the apostle says, Stand fast in the liberty that you have in Christ. And he says, don't be entangled again or, or, or caught up in the yoke of, that other people are bringing upon you. Uh, it's really quite interesting that we are supposed to be free. We are supposed to have a measure of liberty. Now, in this era of 2023, uh, we have, this world has gone through uh, a, major, uh, a major revolution or almost like a reset, as some have said, uh, where people are being conditioned and challenged. Every one of you, everyone that's listening to my voice today has been challenged. Am I going to submit or am I not? Am I going to do what they tell me to do or not? Now, on sometimes that's on a small scale. It's almost like if you're driving down the road, are you going to keep the speed limit? Are you going to go faster than it? Or are you going to go slower than it? That's one way of getting you to conform. But we've had, through the COVID crisis, we've had a lot of people tell us that, that you have to wear something over your face or you don't have to. You have to take a shot or you don't have to. You have to uh, change employment if you don't do what the rules of the employment are. If OSHA says you need to be able to do this, then you need to do it. There's been a lot of pressure. And I come to this text where it says, stand fast in the liberty you have. Don't get caught up in the quicksand, in the bondage. 
Now, I take you to the next one in Ephesians 6, which everybody knows when Paul finished his writing to the, uh, to the church at Ephesus. He t told them, he says, I want you to put on the armor of God. Now, it's, he's not telling you to put on the armor of God because he doesn't want you to have no, no other clothes on. You know, this would be the modest thing for Christians to do, to have at least the armor of God on. No, he's talking about putting on the armor of God because you need the armor for what? There's a battle that's raging. And he tells us that the battle that Christians are going to endure is not with flesh and blood. It's not just with people. It's not with the guns and the mortar. The biggest battle that we have to contend with is for truth. And that's why he says you put on the, the, the armor of God with the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and the, and the uh, being girded with the, with the truth. All of these things. And then Jude ends up expressing it very well. If you have it in front of you, Jude chapter, uh, it's only one chapter, but in verses 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. In other words, I wanted to tell you about some things that would be basic. He said, I found it necessary to have to write to you and appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. And the reason why he says, I have to do this, the reason I'm compelled to write this extra note to you is verse 4. For certain people have crept in unawares. They've got their nose in the tent. They're involved. The other scripture will tell you that there's sometimes wolves in sheep's clothing, but their voices, as I like to say, they're voices that we're listening to. And sometimes we listen to them by choice, and sometimes we just hear the voices, so many of them echoing a cacophony, that we end up getting the world's message, the zeitgeist. Confusion is the evil one's weapon. When you listen to these wrong voices, any other voice that competes with God's, you will end up with polluted thoughts, tainted aspirations, and a deceived utopia. You'll start wanting something other than what God has declared for us to de desire. See if you can finish this verse. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So often we seek that second or third if we seek it at all. As we look at the scriptures today, may God enable you to see what he sees, to grasp his agenda, and without having to, to be caught up with the earthly stigmas attached, being shamed or bullied, uh, you need to be able to see what scripture says rather than simply what everybody else has been telling you. With the possible start of a new Cold War this week, I think there's a historic aspect to it. It reminded me of watching or playing Risk. Um, back when we had homeschool days, we had a life-size Risk game. It was like one you put on the floor. And uh, the kids played it, and uh, it was, it was kind of neat when they had all these armies and they had to move around the globe, and basically you'd roll a dice, and if, you're, if you got the better numbers, then you would take off the armies of the other. And I was watching that, how, how TV has made war different thing to watch. But it almost felt like, well, which team is going to win here? Which one's going to conquer here? Well, you know, and it, it almost seems like, like I said, a board game. But let me put yourself into the, the position of some of the people there to see what kind of advantage or disadvantage people have. You know, because when you look at it from a country standpoint, uh, was Russia actually invading 
Um, if you go to Russia, nobody in Russia would know that because it was banned from their, their media. They're not allowed to declare that as, a, as an invasion. Um, was it just a returning of a wayward satellite state, almost like the prodigal son finally having to come home? Was it an unprovoked act of aggression of a sovereign country? Was it just a creative distraction of other global forces so that we would look over there and not look at what's over here? Was it the means to advocate an actual reset? I, I was just got a, a magazine article from in prisons, and uh, they were talking about the, the Great Reset and talking about how they want to bring equality to all the countries. And one of the ways of doing that is to make the, gas, the price of gasoline so high that it's as if you can't afford it, so it's like you don't go anywhere anymore. Now, that's on the big conspiracy thoughts. But what about the individuals? If you put yourself in the role of Mr. Putin, wow, you get to make the decisions when you're going to go in and invade a country or when you're not. Is that, is that a privileged position? What if you put yourself in the role of the President Zelensky, who is standing there in Kiev every day taking a walk out there with the cameras on him with his bulletproof jacket or bullet, you know, to be, to be able to inspire the people there not to flee? even though there's 290 soldiers that are, that are invading his country. I want you to think a little differently, though, because most of us don't think of the big leaders. What if you weren't one of the people that was stationed on the border in the 290,000 troops, eating your rations every day, waiting for a command to go? And when they tell you to jump, you say, how high? When they tell you to take this or to take that ground, you're supposed to go do it. And they're going into this country that they've probably been in before, and they're taking their weapons to take it over. Is that an advantaged position or disadvantaged? What about if you put yourself in the role of a, of a child? I saw a video. Somebody told me about it. So I looked about the dads who are getting weapons from the local police station in the Ukraine, and they were saying goodbye to their children because they were going to go fight for their children's freedom and the tears that were being expressed because they may not see each other again in the midst of war. You put yourself in the role of that child and saying, is it worth it? On the front of the bulletin cover, you can see a lot of pictures of the kids that are there. And I asked this question today about, um, are you advantaged or are you disadvantaged? Do you have it great, or are you uh, suffering so much? The Bible says that we're going to have troubles in this world. So I want to be able to explain it to you coming from Scripture. Today, by God's grace, we'll see how the forces of evil are still at work. They've been at work since Genesis 3. How the enemy, uh, it, how, how the enemy we fight is on the move. An enemy not with the flesh and blood, but it's an enemy that conquers uh, seeks to conquer our thoughts and our minds and our actions and our pocketbooks. They use words and vocabulary. They use philosophy. They use emotional appeals. And they use momentum or fads or, or even likes if you want to make it connected to social media. But it's all a part of Psalm 2. The people in this world who are godless imagine a vain thing. They want to set themselves up against God as if God doesn't even exist. They want to cut the cords of Christianity. 
And that's what I think we're seeing. Today, I want to explain how they're doing it, how they're influencing uh, not only the political realm, but also the home and also the church. They do it through uh, this thing called advantage. Now, I'm using the word advantage because if I use the term that's used in the popular world, uh, it would end up being condemning already. And I want you to be able to understand and think through this with me. We're going to talk about the awareness of advantage, the abuse of advantage, the, ad, the advantage of advantage, and also the absence of advantage. So today we'll have four points. If you're following along with me, the first one is by far the best. It's the nicest. It's being aware of your advantage. Uh, it is pretty beautiful when you sit here for a moment and you say, wow. Now, let me explain why. If you go to Psalm 139, you're going to see some things that you already know are true, but I want to echo them in your ears. He says, oh, Lord, you have searched me. You know me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts even from afar. You searched out my path when I lie down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before the words come to my tongue, behold, you are already aware. Because what comes out of my mouth has already been in my heart. God, you know what's going on inside. Now, it's very beautiful uh, when you jump down to a couple more in verse 13 and 14, the key verses. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And he goes on, my frame wasn't even hidden from you when I was being made in secret. He says, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. For your eyes saw my, my unformed substance. Now, I want to be able to just focus on this and say, I want you to be aware of your advantage. Think about this for a moment. The reason that I'm talking about advantage like I am is that you need to know that you are not just a blob of tissue. You are not just an accident. You are not a product of chance. You are not just random molecules floating through this universe. You are not just stardust. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. There is nobody quite like you. Maybe we should thank God for that. Maybe we should, we should, just, give, we, we should just marvel at that. Historically, there have been people, and America picked up on it a little earlier, better than some other countries. They, uh, Thomas Jefferson put it well when he said, we, were our, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, which among them are life and liberty and the, and the pursuit of happiness. There is something about being created and having liberty, being in God's image. This is really wonderful. We are all created beings. And Abraham Lincoln picked up on that at the Gettysburg Address when he ended up saying, uh, we are dedicated to the proposition that all men, generic, are created equal. A nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to that proposition. You see, historically, we've grown up in a culture that's supposed to have embraced the uniqueness of every individual. Sometimes we might even say the exceptionalness of everyone. Now, certainly, if you have a child, your child's the greatest, right? It's the best, the cutest, the happiest, you know, has the smelliest poop and everything. You know, your child just almost walks on water. You know, why would you think that? It's because that little child is unique. I mean, I'm finding an amaze. I'm amazed when, when our little granddaughter can roll over. And we're, gonna, we're amazed that she can talk like a dinosaur sometimes. 
Oh, isn't that cute? Scientifically, this is proven over and over again. If you just took a look at your finger right now, you have a fingerprint. Who else has a fingerprint just like yours? If you get a microscope or if you get into the details, you're going to find out that you have DNA. The, the chains of information that are there are unique to you. It is amazing how you are so special. When, when I think about this, the Bible also includes this when he says that he, God, is the one that puts you into this world. And, I, and I'll give you a few illustrations. I think of Esther and Mordecai or Moses and Miriam or David in the family. And let me just tell you a little bit. God was the one that, that orchestrated all the details. When it comes to Esther and Mordecai, you guys know that Esther and Mordecai didn't get to pick which era they came to exist. They didn't get to live when we had cell phones. They got stuck living in Persia. Now, when you think about it, uh, which one is older and which one's younger? Well, if you look at their family dynamics, you find that they had funerals because uh, basically uh, Esther was, was orphaned, and so Uncle Mordecai had to take care of her. And then you realize that their storyline is quite interesting because they didn't get to live in America. They didn't have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In fact, they were in a government that made a ruling, a declaration that is unchangeable that all the Jews were going to be put to death on the 14th day of Nisan. Do you think they felt advantaged? Do you think that they felt like they were little peons? What can I do? I can't change anything. But if you realize in the text in Esther 4, you realize that she was there for such a time as God has appointed. And Mordecai was so strong in his faith that God had made things special. He said, look, you could do it, but if you don't do it, God will raise somebody up to do it. It's really quite beautiful when you see how unique and how special, but God is in the business of giving you what you have. Uh, it includes your, your, your place in this world. It includes your birth order. It includes your ethnicity. It includes your gender. It includes the reason you're here. Why are you still here? My mom just turned 90, and that's one of the questions where the family kind of asks, what does God still have in store for her? You know, I know it's not on her bucket list to climb Mount Everest. She did get to see it, she told me. But she has different aspirations now, but what are they? What has God called you where you are at this season of your life to be doing? Moses and Miriam, you know, you can follow them through the storyline from Exodus 2 on because you find those two characters. You know, Miriam was the older sister. Moses was the crying baby. He was stuck in, in the bulrushes, and, and his mom looked like she abandoned him to the Nile River. She really didn't. But that's what it looked like. And so when Moses, on cue, started crying, I mean, they must have coached him for a long time to do it right. The ladies, that Pharaoh's daughter just was amazed to pick him up out of the basket, and, his, and God had placed him for such a time as this. Did Moses have a privileged life? I think almost all of us would say yes. He got probably some of the best training that anybody ever could have gotten. And he was the son of people that were, that were considered insignificant. He would have never been drafted into any big university. And yet he ended up becoming in line to be Pharaoh. 
Pretty amazing when you think about it. Or David, King David. We all think of David as being a mighty man, right? He had his 600 mighty people. But if you look at David's early life, he was ignored and forgotten. He was the last kid. He was the baby in the family of Jesse. In fact, when Samuel came to Jesse's house to check out all the boys, they skipped over him. Do you think David felt like he was advantaged being the baby in the family, having the responsibility to take care of the smelly sheep? Now, all of this is to explain to you that you need to be aware of your advantage. You are special. There's nobody else like you by God's design. And you're here with a purpose. You are not just a mess. And once you digest that, it should give you a response of rejoicing. And, and I go back to Psalm 139. He says, uh, let me see if I can quote that text for you once more, where he says, how, uh, I, uh, verse 14, I will praise you. I will praise you, O oh God. I don't know if you really feel like thanking God for all the things that are a part of the package deal you've got. I've had to wear these specs since I was two. You know, I've cut down. I, I can say I have an advantage now. I don't have to pay a barber to do much. But, but when you think of it, I'm the fifth kid of eight. My dad was, a, was in ministry all of his life, and I know what it's like in a lot of ways. Now, am I advantaged or disadvantaged? This is part of the confusion that we have in our life. Because we tend to not want to respond as, the Psalm, or as, as Psalm 149 says, Lord, I praise you. This is what you gave me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I pray that today you'll be able to say that. Now, that's the first point. Let me take you to the second point, which is the abuse of advantage. And this is where the world starts to creep in and starts to mess things up on you. And you end up beginning to have your, your focus shifted from the way it should be, uh, away from the uniqueness how God made you uh, to, to the disadvantages that you experience in this life. You leave the idea that God is right to be able to make you the way you are and to give you some of the experiences you have, and, and you start to get grumpy at it. In other words, you wouldn't look at the guy who, the man who was born blind and say, isn't that great? Or Zacchaeus, who was, who was a short guy. You would say, oh man, what a disadvantage. He ought to join a group. All the short people in the world. And the short people ought to be able to go first in line because they can't see what's up there. I mean, if, if you start thinking through this, this is the folly of the abuse of the advantages that we have. God made us special, but we end up exploiting these differences. Uh, I go to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. I believe this portion is all about covetousness. The world is teaching you to be covetous. If you look at Exodus chapter 17, look at all the things that you could covet. You could covet what your neighbor has or where he lives. You can covet uh, the neighbor's marital relationship. He probably has a prettier wife or a more handsome husband. Uh, you can covet his, uh, the people that work with him. Uh, you can even covet the, the, uh, the stuff that he has to be able to do the work, the ox or the donkey. Uh, you can covet his, his employment situation, his bank accounts. You can want everything else that he has. But did you notice the first, first line of that verse? You shall not. I believe that the abuse of advantage is when people start thinking that it's okay to covet. 
It's okay to start looking at the, the grass on the other side of the fence. It's okay to start desiring and wanting what other people have. And uh, this is why when I, when I dive into this, they are focusing on the differences rather than on uniqueness. And the response that you're going to have when you focus on differences is usually not rejoicing. It's complaining. When you find that somebody else got in line in front of you, when you find out that somebody else has more money than you, somebody that looks better than you, somebody that lived longer than you, somebody that's more eloquent in their speech than you, somebody that can, that can uh, make a phone call and get things done faster than you, somebody even knows how to use electronics when you can't. It's really quite interesting. Uh, what I wanted to be able to tackle, though, is that this covetousness, this cult of covetousness, exploits our differences. And the way they do it is by changing of terms, they're changing our focus, and then they have some different actions that they give for solutions. They change the terms away from unique, special, and exceptional to being pluralized, like terms of diversity and inclusion. Have you ever heard of those words these days? Diversity and inclusion are being brought up everywhere. Diversity is, is not a bad term at all. But diversity is not based on you being an individual. Diversity is always a term that's connected to the group. It's whatever group you're connecting, uh, whether it's a subset or whether it's a whole set, it's more than one. And when you talk about diversity, you're focusing on the differences. Because that's what it really means to be diverse. It is recognizing everyone's God-given uh, uh, it recognizes everybody's God-given differences, yes, but it also promotes a glory of plurality. It's a goal instead of just an observation. And that goal turns into the word inclusion. In fact, I was talking with one of the elders on our retreat about how the universities are embracing this term inclusion. It is not just descriptive. Now it is one of their, their, their desires, their passions, and they measure whether they've included or not. When they start talking about different categories of LGBTQTRS, whatever letters it is, they want to include everybody, regardless of whether it is intrinsic or whether it is active. Um, there is a, this push towards it, and it's really interesting because it's an inclusion of differences. It's a polymorphic hope, which is consistent with postmodern thinking of truth. In other words, postmodernism says there's many truths, there's many faiths, there's many coexisting positions, and, and there's even a multiverse. I mean, you got to get into all these many things. Because all of these things exist all of them are out there. You've got your truth. I've got my truth. And it's really interesting that in this particular realm, then you have all this diversity. And so now truth is diverse too. And if you see that this is a part of the confusion that the evil one is sending our way. So I told you they change the terms and they creep into our world. By, and by changing the terms, they change our focus. It's away from what God has called you to do. God called you uniquely. He puts you on this world for such a moment and time as this. And instead of focusing on why God put you here, you have an, you're, you're being focused on something else that's absent of God's activity. It's a focus on your victimhood status in this world. You're not focusing on the advantages anymore. You focus on the disadvantage. And that's really popular. It's really popular. You end up... You end up being sad that you don't have the things that you want. 
you end up being frustrated because you got a, a raw deal. You got the short straw instead of the long straw. You know what I'm talking about. It's so easy to see somebody else, even in the room today, and wish that you had what they had. But you've been disadvantaged. You, you've been told that you should be able to blame somebody else because it didn't work out the way that you wanted. And so they, they are, it's different from AA. AA with Alcoholics Anonymous used to ask you to look for, a, for an outside help so that you could have a higher power to help you because you were flawed and you were broken. And even though they didn't always focus you on God, they said you needed help from outside of you. That's good. But in this postmodern thinking, the idea of getting help from outside of you is to say, hey, everybody else is bad. Everybody else is in the wrong groups. They're, they're all not doing it right. They're on, the, they're on the wrong side of history. They're not keeping up with the way they, they want you to keep up. They have a path and you're not following it. They focus on outcomes. They focus on inequity. Uh, now they call it equ equitable. Uh, they focus on a different kind of things that are happening. And the way that they modify our behavior is three ways. You may have already noticed it. Labeling, dividing, and then organizing the divided groups. In labeling, they generate new labels that stick. Before long, you start identifying yourself with the labels that they've given you. Okay, if I was to ask you to describe uh, the new Supreme Court nominee, what do you know about the nominee? Everybody now knows how great a juror or how great a judge that person is, right? No, what everybody knows is the categories and the labels. It, they have been so effective at telling the world that we are quick to be able to identify that person just like they want us to. Notice I didn't even give you any descriptions. You already have them. When, when, I, when I think about how they are so effective at labeling, uh, the terms that they like to be able to put in front of you are the categories that they've created. Poverty, elite, educated, persecuted, male, female, sensitive to the community, uh, full of hate. You know, all these are different categories. And you might fall into one of them. So you better watch out. You better not break, you know, you better not get out of line. I'm telling you why. Because you're going to be labeled. And in Canada, recently, when they were doing some of the labeling, they also had some consequences that went with it. But once the labeling happenings happens, then the dividing takes place. They're generated by giving the categories of gender, color, age, IQ, location, education, opportunity, national origin, war experience. You can come up with all those. Some of these categories are really wonderful. Those of you that claim to be veterans. I always try to get in on that by saying I'm part of the Lord's Army. I usually don't get the discounts. But when you think about it, the grouping up of people is something that they like to do. It's seen in the voting blocks. You know, you can talk about, listen to anybody on any station. They'll talk about the urban and rural, the soccer moms, the Gen X, the TikTok crowd, the uh, social media followers, the Hollywood uh, folks. It's really interesting. It's all been done before. People always grouped up. Back in, the, in my dad's day, some people wore stars, the yellow ones. Some people in some countries were wearing brown shirts. And in another country, they were wearing black shirts. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
you know, you can see how groups were made and these people ended up becoming the leaders, whether they were in, in Hitler's group or whether they were with Mussolini uh, or whether they were not with their group. You can see how when you group people up and you categorize them and then you put them even in, into, into smaller groups, that's where the organizing takes place. It's not just good enough to label them and to divide them, but it's then to take the people because of their pain, because they have been so disadvantaged. Now they're grouped up with other disadvantaged people, and now we're going to do something about it. You're a Christian, right? Are you disadvantaged? Are we here together as a group therapy session? All of us are so sad that immorality is on the rise. And so we're gathering together at church to be able to have a group think so that we can be motivated to be able to go out there and get our causes accomplished. See, it's very similar. When they do this, this group think, they create an alternative church. And it's interesting how many people join those groups. You know, it can be simple as being an NFL fan. And you're going to do everything for that NFL team. You're going to wear its jersey, pay the dues. You're going to go and, and sit there when they have their worship service. It's usually on Sunday as well. I mean, you can see the parallels. And this is done in every kind of group. Make sure you show your bona fides that you are a part of it. You're loyal. You're faithful. It's so subtle what the evil one is doing in dividing. That's why in Mark chapter 3, verse 25, a house divided against itself will not stand. Satan is in the, into this business. And, and I t tell you from the groups of Scripture, God does do some dividing. I want you to know that, this, that God is not saying, oh, yeah, everybody's going to heaven. That's called universalism, and that is an error. If I take you to a couple of the verses that we have, even from 1 Corinthians 15, 42, the one that we read today already, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. In other words, when you die, not everybody's going to the same place. Those that, have, that are going to be raised, are the, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. He said there's going to be a change. And that's why that emphasis is that if you're one of Christ's, then you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're out of, outside of it. In 1 John, or John 1, 14, to, the, to those who are in Christ are actually called the children of God. And if you're a child of God, then you're in the in crowd. You're part of the family of God. And if you're not, you're not a part of the family of God. You can see these two worldviews. I was reading in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 and following. It talks about the two worldviews. Narrow is the way and broad is the other way. And he ends up going on, he says, uh, their observable conduct. You can look at people and see if, they're, if they have the fruit of the Spirit or if they don't. And even the fake speech. There are some who are going to say, Lord, Lord. But he says, depart from me. You're not one of mine. Now, all of this is because people that have been disadvantaged figure out how to do some other things to be a part of groups that they want to identify with, even though they may not truly be a Christian. There are some people in the church that end up doing that. There's some people in the homes that end up acting like their children when they really don't have that, that mortar of God's love to keep the order. Now, I wanted to, to, to move you quickly to, to the next one, is that there is, oh, after the abuse of this liberty, or this abuse of this, uh, as I call it, advantage, you don't have happiness. You don't have the joy from Psalm 139. You have misery. And that's what's going on in this world. How many of you have relatives? I think you all do. Are all your relatives happy? Are they happy with you? This is where you get the struggle that unfolds. 
people ends up misery loving company or misery creating alienation. Love needs to be the bond that pulls us together. Third point is quicker, which is the advantage of advantage. Uh, the reason I use this is very creative thinking. What does it mean to have advantage? It's to be favored. In my family, I'm, I told you I'm one of eight kids. I happen to be the second son. So, I mean, I'm not privileged to the big inheritance, which my dad never had. Um, you know, I was the fifth kid, too. I mean, I was left out from the first four group because I, as I said, I, I have my beautiful glasses on since two. And uh, we had a group of four, and then we had a group of four. That's just the way it was. There's no point in complaining about it. This is God's lot for me. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That's why I was inserted. It just so happened that um, because I was the fifth kid, somehow or other, my dad at a particular time in the ministry needed some help. And so by me being there to help because I was available because my older family couldn't, couldn't do it, they had jobs, they had this and this, I ended up being there at his right hand to be able to turn on the equipment, to be able to help him with broadcast, to help him do the church work stuff. And before long, I ended up helping carrying his suitcases as we traveled around the world. My kids think I've been everywhere. You know, I've, been, I've seen the Kremlin. I've seen Ukraine. You know, I've seen um, China just recently. I've been to the door of Wittenberg in Germany. You know, it's pretty amazing how God has opened up the door for me to be able to go. And sometimes I feel like, oh, I'm so disadvantaged. And then sometimes I feel like I'm so advantaged. The point of this, the advantage of advantage, is to recognize a divine component. It's when you get favor that you don't deserve. You see, God made you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. But when God introduces himself to you, when he opens up your dead eyes, your blind eyes, when he quickens your hard heart and softens it, when God's grace comes to meet you where you are, it's amazing. Romans 5, 8, while you were yet in your sins and trespasses, God's grace came to you. And you, instead of staying in your just unique spirit, position, you became a special, unique person. You became a recipient of God's special grace. You see, common grace is for everybody in this world. Even, even the order in your family, in your home, and in your church, or, or in, the, in the community, all of that is common grace. God sends his reign upon the just and the unjust. All of that is common grace. And praise God for his common grace. But when you get the advantage of advantage, that of all the people in the world, God chose you. God purposed to change you while you were yet a sinner. If you go to Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 and the whole verse but I mean the whole text but it says for by grace not by your performance for by grace for God's grace you have been changed. Your status is no longer hell it's heaven. Your status is communion with God not alienation from an angry angry creator. For by grace you have been saved. God has given you the gift of faith. You didn't have to buy it. You didn't have to earn it. You didn't have to perform for it. You didn't have to have a hereditary line for it. You got it. It was a gift. You can't boast about it. It's a gift. Because God did something in you. The advantage of advantage. Let me, let me stop and just say the world doesn't like advantage. Now if you bring up that picture of the race the blue picture that's got the, everybody at the starting line. We don't like this picture, do we? Do you? Do you want to be the guy that's out front? That got the head start? Oh, yes, you do. 
Pastor, you're setting me up for, for if I say yes, that's wrong. If I say no, I'm wrong. It's really kind of interesting because what's going on here is that you know you would like to be out in front. You know you'd like to win that race. But you know it's wrong to get that advantage because you've been trained that it's wrong and it's unfair. It's really unfair, isn't it? Isn't it? How do you know it's unfair? Because you have come up with what fair should be. My point is this. <laughs> there may be a reason why this is legit. But for us, we don't like it because we think that it's an unfair advantage. We think that there's been a manipulation. But I want to tell you about grace. Why did you deserve to get grace and somebody that you know in your family that's not a Christian doesn't have it yet? Oh, pastor, I can't stand that thought. Oh, no, God gives it to equal to everybody. And it's up to everybody to be able to pick what they want. I want you to know, if you didn't get to even pick your hair color, well, maybe some of you have, you didn't even get to pick your height. What I'm trying to say to you is, God is the one who made you unique. You are here at his design and call. You are here with a purpose, Jeremiah 1.5. I put you here with a reason. And when you look at it, the, uh, the, the advantage of advantage, God has done something for you. It's not all about equality. And this equity stuff, if you buy into it, you're going to miss what grace is because grace isn't deserved. It is not something that is fair. Boy, did I blow it. Bad sermon, preacher. We need to live in a fair world. Everybody has equal outcomes. Everybody has a fair shake. Everybody gets to go to heaven. Everybody gets to have ice cream after church. I mean, it, it, the thing is, is that when you start thinking about what fair is, you've already missed. You've missed it. Because you're getting into the term justice. And, and today's culture is, is putting a lots of words in front of justice because they don't like God's justice. They want social justice. They want gender justice. They want reproductive justice. They want all these kind of things. And every time they do that, they're saying that there's an unfair advantage. We ought to, if you're a woman, you shouldn't have to carry a baby in your womb. You should be able to be free not to carry a baby in your womb. And the reason you should be free is that you can be able to get rid of that baby so that you can be just like the men because everybody needs to have equal outcomes. Now, that was something that they used to say a few, uh, even a couple decades ago. Nowadays, they've moved beyond that to be able to say, well, I'm not a man, I'm not a woman, I'm whatever I want to be today. I can pick which bathroom I want if I want. It's really interesting how the culture is abusing the, the advantage that God's given us. And what I'm trying to get for us is that when you understand the true advantage of advantage, then you're going to say, wow, God, I am a mess. I certainly have shortcomings. I haven't lived up to all my dreams. I've not followed through with all of the things that I said I'd follow through with. I have missed the mark in speaking everything exactly the way I wanted to say. I haven't been the best husband or I haven't been the best wife. I haven't been the best kid. I haven't been the best parent. I have. You, you know that you can admit to your sin real quick. And praise God for the advantage of advantage because salvation is not based on your performance. It never was and it never will be because it was based on your performance, you would never, never, ever be able to go to heaven. It was based on his performance when he went to the Calvary's cross. 
The last point I wanted to make in this sermon before we conclude is the absence of advantage. The absence of advantage. Now, in our culture today, they're trying to tell you that the way that everything is going to get better is a utopia that they're pushing. It's a heaven on earth. Some of them are thinking that it's going to include green deals and it's going to uh, have climate become really nice for all of us so that if you live in, in the North Pole, you know, you'll be able to grow palm trees just like if you live at the, uh, you know, it won't be too hot for you at the, at the equator. The idea there is that we're going to help manipulate this little globe of ours and we're going to make it a better place. We can work hard enough if we work together on it. We can hit a reset button and it's going to get better because right now it's a mess. Everybody admits it's a mess. But their solution is different. In Galatians chapter uh, three, 2, he says there is another gospel that they're advancing. But it's not really good news. It's a false gospel. And so when you, when you realize, he says, don't stand fast in the liberty you have in Christ. Don't be ensnared in their false gospel. And then that's the whole point about this, this absence of, of this advantage. There's going to be a day when you won't even notice anymore your ethnicity, your age, what you can remember and what you can't. You know, what's in your bank account and what isn't. You're not going to worry about it. One day it's going to come to pass that the things that we all divide ourselves up or label ourselves by are going to be canceled. And that's why I want to take you to that text where he says, uh, some, of the, some of the text here about being canceled comes from... Um, the absence of here is Galatians 3.28. That's where we brought up. Because the true gospel says there's no Jew, no Greek, no slave or free, no male nor female when you're in Christ. What he's trying to tell us is that when you get connected to the true church, when you're a part of the true vine, when you've gone through the only door and you're following the only shepherd, the true shepherd, when you are connected to Christ, then all of these things that have divided us don't divide us anymore. If you look at the actual text there, it's, it, it's referring to that we're going to be going to heaven and it's not going to make any difference. Somehow or other, when we get to heaven, we're going to sing probably the same language. I don't think it's going to be English. But we're not going to sing any off notes. And I know that because there'll be no more tears. We won't have to suffer through any uh, bad music or anything like that. We're going to have a wonderful time. Galatians 3 says that in Romans, excuse me, Revelation 5, 9, and 10. They sang a new song up there. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe, from every language, from every people, from every nation. It's really quite interesting. It is not colored blindness. But it is an erasing of, and it is not an erasing of your uniqueness, but a setting in which there will be no covetousness, no more competition of who's the greatest in the kingdom. There'll be no more wars, no more tears, no more bloodshed. It's quite interesting when you realize that. But back in Jesus' day, Matthew 18, 1, the disciples that hung around Jesus, let me quote, at that time the disciples came back to Jesus and said, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> it's really interesting how childish we really are. In application today, there is another, there is another gospel being advanced in our culture. It is, it is a global reset. And 
Christians are being tempted to fall into it, to push what some of them call wokeness. For we know, uh, let me read a little bit from 2 Corinthians 5 as I conclude. For we know that this tent is our earthly home. It's going to be one day destroyed. For we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. It's going to be eternal in the heavens. In other words, God's going to give us another body, a new soma in the Greek. For in this tent we do groan. Yes, we have some disadvantages. Yes, we have some pain. I mean, one of our brothers in our congregation has been dealing with pain at the eyeball. It's awful when you think about it. And yet, some of the others are dealing with pain in other parts of the body. There's one brother within our, our connections of our family looking for a new liver. There's a lot of things we groan in this body, longing for our heavenly dwelling. While we're here, we're always saying we're looking for the upper taker. We're looking for something better. If indeed by putting it on that we may not be found uh, naked or exposed. Verse 4, for while we were still in this tent, we groaned, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by what's going on in life. And he says, so we are of good courage, verse 6. We know that while we were at home in the body, we are still away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sights. Yes, so we can be of good courage, and we would rather walk away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's where we want to be. So whether we are at home or away, we make this our aim just to give glory to God, to please Him. Brothers and sisters, there's three responses, and I hope you have the right one. Do you see that God made you special? If you could put up the picture of the race with all the different people on it. Not that one. That one. Do you see yourself up there? Pastor, you're baiting me. You're trying to make me identify by my skin color or by my hair or by my... Some of them have skirts on? I can't believe that. Oh, there's no old guys? You've been discriminated against. We have a race that God has set before us, Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to run this race. It's not about fairness. It never has been about fairness. If you want fairness, then you don't have grace. And if you don't have grace, you're not going to be able to enjoy heaven. My point is, is that God has put this before us. And I want to encourage you, in the days that you have ahead of you, don't get sucked in to the, to the, the vocabulary and to the division and then to the organizing of the evil one. Don't become a part of the other gospels a direction, the false churches that are out there that are really active at recruiting people. We all know that, that young people today are not flocking to real churches. Where are they going? My encouragement to you, don't give up hope. God has said the church of Jesus Christ will prevail, that God is not going to abandon it. He will be with us to the end of the age. He will help us to take this gospel as we proclaim it, teach it, and share it as we are going. We'll take the good news wherever we end up going. And the good news is, is that you don't have to have a fair life. But you have to respond by rejoicing that God has given you life. He's given you life with all of its mess. As I told you before, with all of the advantages you have, there's corresponding disadvantages. Those of you that are, that are great talkers are not good listeners. Those of you that can write well often are not really inclined to, uh, to do other things well. You know, some of you can cook and some of you can't cook. What I'm trying to say is, is that you are unique. Don't get mad at God about the uniqueness you have. 
I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In light of that, don't be sucked into the idea to say, woe is me, I'm so sad, nobody wants to play with me, nobody wants to do this with me, oh. You, you see, what you end up falling into is the secular world, and you're buying into their disadvantage, and they're gonna tell you, oh, just find other people who have the same struggle as you, and then they're gonna try to organize you to do something about it. And you see, all of that goes back with no grace. There's no forgiveness. When you get locked into a labeled group, how do you get out of it? For those of you that are women, how do you change it? For those of you that are men, how do you change it? Obviously, God made you that one. You can't change that. If God gave you a little darker skin, oh, pastor, you've gone to racism. No. I had a pastor friend of mine tell me, he's a, he's a black pastor, and I used to tell him, oh, no, we need to be colorblind. He came back and he created, he, he uh, kind of gave me one of those V8 moments. It wasn't a real slap in the face, but it felt like it. He says, God made me with color. I don't have to be ashamed of it. And I'm like, that's right. But you don't have to idolize it either. You see, this is the beauty of not falling into the diversity camp that pushes you into inclusion, that actually pushes you into exclusion for permanent alienation. Because the goal of our secular world, the goal of the evil one, the, the goal of the, the dark forces is to put you in camps where you can never get along again. Let me ask you this. Do you think that if you are in Ukraine right now and the Russians came over and they destroyed your house and they killed your dad and they've done all these things, do you think that you're going to be welcoming the next Russian troop that comes into your table to, uh, you know, to, to, to fellowship with them? By God's grace, you can. See, all of these things can be forgiven. But the emphasis I'm trying to say is don't pit the things that God made you unique about against somebody else. If God made you for such a time as this, then that's what you need to be doing, is using what he gave you to accomplish his purpose for you until he comes again. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have given us hope that we do not have to fall into the quicksand of, of all these accusations and labels. Lord, today we can rejoice that we are unique. We can rejoice that even though we may not have the perfect health, that we may not have the perfect body, we may not have a perfect uh, lungs or perfect uh, livers or perfect this or that, we know that you are going to prepare something for us that is beyond our imagination. But the greatest part about the future is not that we're going to be delivered from our shortcomings and our seeming inequities, but we're going to be able to spend time unhindered, undistracted, unalienated from our Savior for eternity. Lord, I pray that you will bless everyone in this room with more faith. Help them to see the beauty of the empty cross. Help us to recognize that we are special because your grace has opened our eyes up to see that Jesus' death was not because he angered a few people in his day. His death was so for the remission of our sins. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement for my peace was upon him. And with his stripes, I, we are healed. We thank you for this beautiful gift of salvation of this grace, this advantage of advantage. In Jesus' name I give thanks. Amen.